This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the legendary Irish hero, Fionn McCall. And you'll see that if you're looking for a babysitter, you really can't go wrong with a druidist bent on revenge and a deadly warrior woman. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a giant lava lizard who doesn't realize just how much of a stereotype he is. This is Myths and Legends, episode 95A, Wanted. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. So, when's the last time you checked your credit score? Because your scores may change more often than you think. And you should know what they are now, and not from a year ago. Credit Karma's here to help. The best thing? Credit Karma is always free, and there's no catch. No credit card needed. I've been using it for a while now, and I really like it. It's really nice to get free, regular updates on my credit score. I really can't recommend it enough. So go to creditkarma.com or download the Credit Karma app now. This week, we're back in Irish folklore. Today's story takes place in ancient Ireland, maybe sometime in the 3rd century AD, when the Roman Empire ruled the world, slash was in slow motion collapse. To put it in historical context for the other stories we've talked about on the show, we're about two or 300 years before King Arthur, and we're several hundred years before the Viking Age, and any of those legends. It's around the same time as the Toyn, the big Irish story from about two years ago, though there's no overlap, so no worries if you haven't listened to those episodes. Today's legends center around a kid named Fionn McCool, you might know him better by the name Finn McCool, which I feel like is the Marty McFly of legendary hero names, but a listener reached out with a guide, and I'm going to try to go with a more traditional Irish pronunciation of the words. By listener request, I stopped apologizing for mispronunciations years ago, but I'm going to make an exception this week. Sorry in advance for the likely rampant mispronunciations. Anyway, I have received so many requests for the story of Fionn over the past two and a half years, and I'm excited to be getting to it. Today's story doesn't start with Fian, though, but with his mother, running for her life in the rain. Her husband was dead, and Gaul one-eyed had killed him. This thought rang through Mira's mind over and over again as she rode through the night through the rain. With her husband dead, there was no one to protect her. She rested her hand on her stomach to protect them. She waited as long as she could. When the storms began to rise that night, she knew it was an ill omen, but she still had hope. Her husband had been the leader of the Fianna, the warriors. He was a hard man, a stern man, a man who stood in the face of danger and took what he wanted. She stared off into the night. He was a man who took who he wanted. He had wanted her, and he had taken her. She had been awed by him. She was just a girl. Still, she wondered if she had any say in the matter. Her father, though, he had a say in the matter. But Qual, the woman's future husband, had come for her in the night, and she couldn't resist. Her father wasn't accustomed to giving up, either, and though he didn't have Qual's warrior bands, he did have the ear of the High King. The High King's warriors, 
led by Gaul One-Eyed, a name bestowed on him by the actions of Myrna's husband in an earlier battle, met Qual in battle. It began with Qual defiantly spitting in the face of the king and the law. It ended with Qual dead and Gaul as the new leader of the Fianna. But Gaul One-Eyed wasn't the new leader of the Fianna, not as long as the child inside of Myrna lived. That prospect, unfortunately, was looking more and more grim by the hour. At first, word came that Qual was weakening, then rumors that he had fallen, then two world-shattering messages came at the same time. Her husband was now dead. That news arrived just ahead of an edict from her father. In light of Gaul One-Eyed's control of the warrior bands, he was now disowning Myrna to keep the peace. If she was found, she was to be captured and brought to him. She and her child, the true heir to the leadership of the Fianna, would be burned alive. So she rode. She rode through the night to the only people she could trust, the only people who had nothing to gain from killing her. She rode to the house of her husband's brother and his wife, Bodil. They lived just on the edge of the forest. It was hours of riding through the storm, but it was the only place she knew she would be safe. She could only ride so fast, too. It was super dangerous to ride at night, and the last thing she wanted was to fall off the horse, or possibly worse, to go into labor in the wilderness. A few times she thought she heard hooves behind her, but still, she pressed on. It was nearly morning when she saw the lights of the house glowing on the edge of the forest. She got down from her horse as best she could and staggered inside. The first faces she saw were that of her brother-in-law and his wife. The second faces she saw were of Gaul One-Eyed's warriors. They had been waiting for her. The brother-in-law stopped her from running back to the horse and tried to calm her down, saying that it was okay. The High King had intervened on her behalf. There was politics, and then there was burning pregnant women for an easy out. He had personally guaranteed her protection. It was over. Mirna relaxed, and then she felt it. It was like a sharp ache in her abdomen. Her night wasn't over at all. It was just beginning. She was going into labor. The brother-in-law had a few servants in and out of the room, but Bodil, his wife, took the lead. She was a druid, one of the priestly class, and she claimed to know that her husband's brother, Qual, would fall. And not just because that rhymes. She knew that Myrna would be there that night, and that the baby would be born. They were hours into labor when they heard a pounding at the door. The brother-in-law stood to answer it, but Bodil stopped him. Over Myrna's cries, she pulled him close and whispered something in his ear. He shook his head, but she nodded in response. There would be no discussion. She kissed him, and the couple embraced. He went to answer the pounding, and she closed the door to the bedchamber behind him. The brother-in-law staggered to the door. He looked back one more time at Myrna's room before answering, though he already knew who it was. Gall One-Eyed's men burst through the door, demanding to know where she was. The brother-in-law pushed them back. He told them that this was his house, and that Myrna was under the protection of the High King. He drew his sword. If they wanted her, they had to go through him. They sneered. They didn't care about her. Yeah, she was under the protection of the High King, so they couldn't hurt her, but he didn't say anything about the kid. The minute the kid was out of her, 
Qual's line would be through. They heard Myrna scream from the back room, then silence, then a baby cry. The brother-in-law lunged at one of the men with the sword, but they caught his arm, twisted it back until the sword clanged uselessly on the stone, and kicked him to the side. They rushed toward the door, but found it was locked from the inside. They pounded as they heard Myrna weeping and the baby screaming. Finally, the door shattered loose from its hinges as the two men barreled into the room. Inside, Myrna was on the bed, clutching a pillow and sobbing. The window was open, and the curtains fluttered. Bodil, the druid, was gone. And the baby, named Demne, in the few moments he had with his mother, was safe. Demne's skinny arms burned as he flung himself the rest of the way to the top of the tree. It was the tallest in the forest. There was no point in climbing the same tree twice. And even though he was just six years old, he pushed himself every day. Now, basking in the beautiful loneliness at the top of it all, he took a rest. He had only ever known life in the forest. Bodil had been clear with him. She was not his mother. Neither was her friend, a warrior woman named Firkel. Demne had known who his mother was since he had known anything at all. It was a woman named Myrna. He also knew who his father was. Even at six, he knew the burden that was placed on his life. Even at six, he knew that most children weren't raised from birth by a druidess and a warrior woman to hunt, to kill. It hadn't been easy either. Since he was four, he had to hunt for all of his food. He nearly starved that first week, and he shuddered when he remembered learning to fight. He woke up to Firkel, the warrior woman, tossing a wooden sword in his hammock, then beating him with her own. She pursued him, and he had to learn to hide. He could only come back after he beat her in one match. That had been a long summer. To learn to swim, they tossed him into a freezing river. Demne also knew another name. Gall One-Eyed. The man who was the reason he had to stay here. The reason he had to hide. And live like the fairy children in the forest from long-forgotten stories. Bodil and Firkel had been clear. He was being trained for one purpose. Firkel didn't take just any pupil. And Bodil had left her husband and her home for this. Koal will be avenged and Demne would take his rightful place at the head of the Fianna. Okay, so really, really quick note. He was born Demne, but we're going to start calling him Fian from here on out. There's a lot of different spellings, and in some places he's called Finn McCool, but I've been assured Fian is, is approximating the correct Irish pronunciation. Anyway, it's a name given to him later, but it's the one he'll come to be known by, and I've learned from previous episodes, Irish episodes in particular, that it gets really confusing to change the names mid-story, so we're doing it early this time. Anyway, as Fian, or Demne, looked out over the trees of the forest, he looked on the vast, sprawling forest of Sleeve Bloom. This was higher than he had ever climbed. In the distance, he thought he saw the shadows of keeps and castles hemming the horizon. As he slung his pack over his back, he was determined that his life would be for more than revenge, that he would claim his place in the world outside the forest. He heard the hawk above him, almost invisible in the night sky. He pulled a smooth stone and dropped it into his sling. He took aim and let it fly. He walked into his cabin after dark, 
the hawk flung over his shoulder, Bootle chastised him for coming home after dark. But Ferical was silent. She was always silent. Fionn dressed and cooked the hawk, ate, and dropped into a deep, well-earned sleep. It was in that sleep that he thought he felt it. He thought he felt her. He knew that he had been too young to remember his mother. But that night, he thought he heard her sing, hold him, and kiss his forehead. When he awoke, it left a deeper impression than any dream. He wasn't wrong. There was a reason Bodle had chastised him for getting back too late. That night was the first time in six years that Myrna had seen her baby. She had come moments after he was asleep. She had been on the road for months, through Ireland, Scotland, and the rest of Great Britain. She had braved rain and robbers and snow to misdirect the spies of Gull One-Eyed, the man who had watched her for six long years. When she knew she had given the assassins the slip, she returned to the Sleeve Bloom Mountains. She told the women who were raising her son that things were bad outside their forest. Gaul hadn't given up. In fact, he had only become more obsessed with finding Fionn and finally securing his place as the rightful heir of the Fianna. She nearly cried when she saw her son. She stroked his long, blonde hair. He had this whole life here without her. Though he wasn't nearly a baby anymore, she still recognized him as her son. She saw his father in him. She held him for as long as she could and left the forest before the sun came up. Sometime later, Fionn bounded home. He burst through the door to announce his successful hunt, and it was only an instant, a glance, but it was enough. A hunter had wandered into the forest, and the women training Fionn had taken him in, mainly to learn who he was and what he was doing this far out to the forest. Bodle leapt to her feet to shield Fionn from view, and the hunter got just a glance of Fionn's face, but Ferkel saw his brow furrow. Fionn had to sleep in a tree that night, but he could hear the women in the cabin below. Fierkel said that she could track the man. She could kill him, but Bodle refused. The world was growing. They would have hunters, lost shepherds, and singing troops, whoever making their way through the forest. People couldn't start disappearing in this area. That would attract the king. No, they knew this day would come. He was ready. The next day, Fian dropped down from the tree to find that the two women had packed his things. They told him to come with them. It was time to begin the next stage of his training. To do that, they took him far, far away from their little hut. They spent a day and a night and a day moving through the trees and rivers and over mountains until, finally, they reached a road. They camped there overnight, and Fionn rose with the sun the next morning to the women talking to someone. Well, many someones. In fact, Fionn could barely hear the women over the constant chattering of the boys. Fionn emerged from the woods, and the poetry troupe looked at him, and they kept talking. Oh, another one. Bodle told Fionn that he had been discovered, and Gaul One-Eyed's men would be coming for him. Soon. The woman learned of a passing poetry troupe, headed for the next town. They were all about Fionn's age, so it would be easy for him to just fall in. It would be a few weeks until the boys reached town, but Fionn and the women had walked far enough. No one would expect that the son of Kual was among them. She said that when the time came, when it was safe to return, then they would come for him. Until then, he should stay with the boys. He was safe hiding among them. For now. They said a hasty goodbye and pushed him to the group of boys who were already leaving. 
Fionn looked back at the woman who had raised him, as he left the forest where he had spent nearly his entire life, and then he blinked, and they were gone. Having disappeared back into the forest, Fionn sighed and looked to the road ahead. It was a wonderful couple of weeks. None of the boys were in a hurry, and they spent all day talking and laughing and singing. They explained poetry to Fionn, and Fionn pretended to listen. Bodil, the druid, had already taught him everything she knew. He did learn a lot from them, though, like how to have a conversation with another human being, and what it was like to have friends. Each night, Fionn fell asleep looking up at the stars, his heart brimming with excitement, with the dawning realization of just how big and how wonderful the world really was. Since he was accustomed to waking up just before dawn, he rose before any of the other boys. One morning, a few weeks after he had left the women, he slipped away to bathe in the river before the day's walk. It was bittersweet. They would be to Galtis soon, and then he would have to leave the boys. But the boys would never make it to Galtis. Fian spotted the fire first. He never heard the screams. There hadn't been any screams. He saw the smoke rising from the campsite, put his clothes on, and ran back. Fian arrived to watch the last of his friends die. The robber had the boy pinned down, hand over his mouth, and he was sliding the dagger out of the boy's chest as the kids stopped fighting. Fian looked around. They were dead. They were all dead. The robber had snuck up on the boy who was awake and building the fire first cutting his throat from behind. He then went from boy to sleeping boy, making sure they never woke up. When it was done, he was going to loot the bodies and get out of there. That was before Fian arrived. Fian had seen blood before. He grew up hunting almost as soon as he could walk, but blood and death had never made him sick. Not like this. This man had killed people he cared about. And for what? Money? He stepped forward into the clearing and picked up a stick. He had trained with a stick, fought with one, killed with one. Fierical used one, and he knew firsthand the pain you could bring someone with a stick. He announced that he was Fian Makul, son of Kul, and the rightful leader of the Fianna. That was information that people had given their lives to protect, one that Gaul One-Eye would pay for. So why was he telling a robber well, that robber wouldn't be leaving this campsite. But when Fian was done... Wait, are you crying? Fian asked. I didn't even start yet. I mean, I will make you cry, but I was right in the middle of my epic reveal. But the robber wasn't listening. He had thrown his knives to the ground and dropped to his knees. He crawled over, right in front of Fian, and with one sentence, a sentence spat and blubbered through the tears, it all made sense. The man said that he never thought he would see this day. The day when Fian returned to him, he said that he had been there at Fian's birth. He was Bodil's husband, and he was Fian's uncle. Fian followed the man off the road and into the forest. The man was ranting and raving about how wonderful this was. He had been there the day of Fian's birth. He had held off Gaul One-Eyed's men 
while Bodil escaped with Fian. And then the man fell silent with the mention of Bodil, before saying it had been six long years. But he had his path, and she hers. Of course, Fian knew all of this. He knew of his uncle, but didn't know that the man had lost everything when he stood against Gaul McMorna, or Gaul One-Eyed. His home was destroyed, and he was stripped of all honors. He resorted to living as an outlaw, striking at the king whenever he could. He said that that's actually what led to him killing a group of kids. It wasn't only that it was really easy to fight children, but also that these were the children of the nobles, the ones that had supported the king when he overthrew Fian's father. Every time the uncle could strike at them, no matter the cost, he took the opportunity. He led Fian back to his home, it was deep in the swampland. Fian looked on a little swamp hut that would make Yoda's look like a five-star resort and cursed Gaul one-eyed under his breath. His father, dead. His mother, who knows where. He was forced to grow up in exile in the forest, and his uncle was reduced to robbing children with really a paper-thin justification and living in a swamp. They entered the house, and the uncle's hand flew to his knife, and Fian's to a stick. When they saw that they weren't alone... They both relaxed when they saw Fierkel sitting at a small table. She had been there for a few days. Bodil's divinations had told them where Fian would be. Of course, Fierkel didn't tell them any of this. She simply rose and walked out. The uncle turned to Fian and patted him on the back, telling him that he should go with his teacher. Fian was almost out the door when the uncle spoke up, telling him to wait. He had something for Fian. Fian turned to see his uncle getting a shovel and digging into the dirt floor of his hut. As he dug, he told Fian that it was a gift from Fian's father, Kual, given to the uncle in the last days of Kual's life. Before that fateful battle with Gaul, it was a weapon. As we know, the uncle had to do terrible things for money, but he never once considered selling or trading the weapon. It was a spear, but it wasn't from this world. It had been taken from Aileen, the grandson of the Lord of the Underworld. As soon as the uncle finished that sentence, the shovel hit something hard. He smirked and pulled at the weapon, carefully removing it from the hole. The uncle said it was a spear of unimaginable power, taken from the supernatural realms, and it was wrapped in a dirty cloth, shoved in a bucket, and then a bag. The uncle didn't want to take any chances. He said the bag and bucket were probably overkill, but Fian shouldn't unwrap the spear tip, unless he wanted to be the spear's next victim. Yes, it was a hard-won weapon that was the final gift of Fian's father, but it was also functionally useless, and, oh yeah, Fian needed to carry it everywhere. Fian thanked his uncle for everything the man had done for him and his father, and the man shook his head. It was nothing. They were family. The uncle said it was just nice to be able to say goodbye to Fian this time, and the young man agreed. Then, Fian had an idea. Instead of living by himself as a robber in a swamp hut, he should come back with him to the forest. To Bodil, the man got serious. He said that in the time since his brother had been killed, he had to become a different person. To do terrible things to survive, she wouldn't even recognize him now. Like he had said, they were on different paths. Ones that might never meet again. Real quickly, there's another version of how Fian got the weapon, where one of the Fianna, a particularly mean-looking and burly one at that, caught up with Fian 
on behalf of Gaul One-Eyed. I tried to kill him, but Fionn quickly dispatched the man. In that version, the uncle didn't have the late brother's weapon bag, but Gaul had won it the day he killed Koal. He entrusted it to the guy sent to kill Fionn, probably not imagining that the guy would be dumb enough to take the bag with him when he went to kill Fionn. He did, and Fionn found it on his body after the fight. I like the version with the uncle better because it makes a bit more sense to me and it fits better with something that'll happen next week. But just know that for almost every part of the story of Fionn McCool, there are multiple different versions. Anyway, back to the story. Fionn's life in the forest was difficult after that. He was safe, but he wasn't content. He had glimpsed at a bigger world than his woods. That was good, because in the years that followed, as Fionn completed his training, the woods became less and less of a private place. They had to worry more and more about a lost soldier, or a stray shepherd. There was one day when Fionn was out, and he didn't know if it was a misplaced arrow from a hunter, one of Gaul's men. But he bent down to get a drink from a stream and, just then, heard a thud in the tree beside him. When he looked up, an arrow was stuck in it. He ran home and told the women about it. That night, he was packing. Now, it was finally time to go. As they stood, Looking out into the darkness of a summer night, Bodo flew to Fionn and embraced the young man. She told Fionn that she was proud of him, that his father would have been proud of him. He was more skilled than his father ever was. And she told Fionn to find the Fianna, the warrior band. Not all had joined Gaul one-eyed. In fact, the best were waiting for their rightful leader, for Fionn to return. They just didn't know it yet. Virical, of course, was silent, but placed one hand on Fionn's shoulder. It was the nicest thing she had ever done for him. As Fionn walked into the darkness, he looked back at the cabin where he had spent his childhood, to Bodil and Virical watching him go. He would never forget what they had sacrificed to raise him. He would never forget what they taught him. He would never forget his purpose. Two years. Two years since he had walked off into the forest that night. Two years since he had no idea where he was going or what he would do. Oh, and by the way, this is the point in the story where he starts going by Fian, from a group of boys who nicknamed him that, based on his fair hair and skin. Fian means fair. Anyway, Fian watched people from afar at first. Before, one day, he was caught in another forest far from his own. Chanced on by one of the local hunters after Fian had chased down a buck. The man said that there was work for him in the king's household if he could do that. Fian shuddered. The high king? The man laughed. No, they were way too far out in the boonies for that. This was just the king of Fiendrick, and he was no fan of the high king. After hearing this, Fian decided to take the position, and it wasn't long before he was known as the king's best hunter. He gained an audience with the king, and the man was astounded, not only by Fian's ability, but by his education. He knew history, poetry, healing arts and he was a quick learner. In a week, he was out of the forest and in the king's courts, and Fionn was happy, though the stories are quick to say that Fionn was destined to be lonely for his whole life, that happiness was never his companion for more than a moment, and that was true of his time in Fiendrick. One night, while dining with the king, the king made a comment. 
a thoughtless word that changed everything. He said that Fian reminded him of someone, an old friend. He said that if Kual, the late, rightful leader of the Fianna, ever had a son, then he would be exactly like Fian. Fian's smile faded, and his heart sank. He was reminded of his purpose, how his father's death and his killer's would follow him for his entire life. He told the king that he didn't know of the man. It had been before his time. Would the king excuse him for a moment? The king nodded, and it was about half an hour before the man realized that Fian hadn't returned. When he went to his quarters, they found it stripped of everything valuable. Outside the castle walls, Fian hefted the bag on his shoulder and looked back at the town shining in the night. Before walking once again, into the darkness. That short stint in the household of a king changed Fion, though. There was a world out there, and he knew it couldn't hide in the forest forever. As crushing as the responsibility to regain his father's legacy was, Fion knew, even at a young age, that he had to do something. He had abilities and training and education that exceeded even the greatest in any king's household. To not use them, to hide them, would be a tragedy in itself. The world beyond his forest was complicated, messy and flawed, but it was all he had. It only took a few months in the forest this time before he emerged to serve another king. He started again as a hunter, but with his obvious talent and quick wit, he soon attracted attention. And again, he attracted the attention of the king. The man had been hearing that he had a servant, a once-in-a-generation sort of man that was humbling himself to serve as one of the king's hunters. The king himself had to see this young man, and he rode out into the fields on the morning when Fion was returning with the others. The others stopped and bowed low, and Fion followed. But the king commanded that he stand. He commanded the others to leave, and waited until it was just he and Fian standing in the field. When they were alone, he took a deep breath and told Fian that he knew who the young man was. Most people thought that the boy had died. Gaul One-Eyed certainly told everyone that he had killed the son of Koal before the baby had even taken his first breath. And there were probably, what, six people who knew Fian was alive? One, of course, was Gaul. He knew that he hadn't been able to kill the boy, the second was the boy's uncle, who would have died defending him if he could fight. Two more were the women who had raised him in the forest. And the fifth was the man who was talking to him right now. He knew of Fion, and he recognized him the instant he saw him. The reason? Fion looked just like the sixth person who knew Fion was alive. Myrna, Fion's mother, the woman who, over a decade ago, had become the man's wife. And that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Next week, we'll see what Myrna was doing there. We'll come face to face with Gall One-Eyed, and we'll meet a very smart fish. I want to say thanks to Rebecca Lee Black, Manga Man, Caper Mache, oh yeah, this guy, Andrew from a liberal Canada, Vithy1975, Madeline in Paris, Trevor Gorilla TV, 
Lana Del Podcast, Rugby Chick 3, H. Gabro, Kelly Currens, Andy 13, MB 13, and Gela for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. It's great to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a 12-year-old first-generation Microsoft Zune on Amazon, you can get extra episodes, source back ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that would maybe play in a Zune. Does that software still exist? You know what? If you're listening to this on a functional first-generation Zune, send me proof and I'll send you a free membership. It's almost 30 bonus episodes, so, you know, maybe there's space on that thing. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Churufe, from Mapuche mythology in Chile. If you've ever looked at a volcano and wondered if there was a giant lava lizard living in there that liked to eat people, you're mostly right. The Churufe is a giant creature living in volcanoes that likes to eat people. The lizard part was a mistranslation of the myth that was added later. The angry monster is the reason for earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, and, as I mentioned, the only way to keep him from vomiting lava on your town is to give him his favorite snack. People. People. And not just any people. When you're a giant lava monster, I guess you can kind of afford to be picky. I mean, what are we going to do about it? It has very specific tastes. And because it's way too hot for computers or paper and volcanoes, and its victims usually just scream until the fire consumes them, the true fate doesn't realize how tropey and stereotypical it's been in its preference to only eat virgin women. Someone should really let him know that the whole virgin sacrifice thing, it's been done. He's not as creative or as clever as he thinks he is. And really, giant super lava monsters are probably very reasonable creatures, and he'd take that note very well. His tact and grace is evidenced by the fact that, after consuming the young woman, and while her weeping friends and family members are still making their way down the volcano, the Trufe will spit the woman's flaming head down the mountain at the grieving loved ones. The sun god apparently had enough of this sort of behavior and sent his two warrior daughters to put an end to the whole sacrifice thing and stand guard to make sure the Trufe stays in check. They have magical ice swords that keep the Trufe in rock form, but I guess sometimes they have miscommunications that lead to them not scheduling their vacations correctly because the Trufe will still escape from time to time and cause the volcano to erupt. Before the daughters catch up to him, send him back to the volcano and turn the lava back to stone with their ice swords. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more music in the show notes. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 